Good morning, River's Edge. Um, as my dad just said, my name is Coulter Batterton. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, and I'm super excited to get to speak with you guys today. So just to get you guys kind of ahead of the game, why don't you guys open your Bibles and turn to John 8, 21. Um, we'll start through there in a moment. If you do need a Bible, there's a ton in the back. And if you don't have one or you know someone who has doesn't have one, feel free to grab that and keep it. Um, but before we jump into the passage I'm going to be going through today, um, just want to say a few things. One is not everyone is going to know this, but this is my first solo preach. Um, so I've done a number of co-teachings with Matt and some other people in the community. Thank you. Um, but today it's just me. So it's going to be fun. But before I jump into this passage, again, just want to start off by giving thanks to all the people who have shaped me into the man I am today some of whom who are sitting here, my mom, my dad, and really all of you. Um, because of you guys, I'm up here. So because of your influence and the friendship that you have with me, um, that's shaped the man that I am today. So I'm profoundly grateful. So thank you. Um, but anyway, let's get started. So starting in John 8, verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And then I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Even as He spoke, many believed in Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity to dive into your word. God, I pray that I would be clear today that you would speak through me and that the people in this audience would be receptive to what you want to share with them, God. Pray that your presence would be with us today. We love you so much. We give it all to you in your name. Amen. So, as I was preparing this message over the past couple of weeks, um, I found myself questioning what direction to go in, which is super common for people who are preaching. Um, initially, what stood out to me was the reality of the cross. You see Jesus prophetically speaking about his own death, really for kind of the first time in the Gospel of John. And I thought about diving into that concept, seeing what else we could glean from the story that really has been the obsession of Western society for 2,000 years. And yet, when I was in prayer one morning, something else came into my mind. 
One of the biggest themes that is continually spoken about in the gospel accounts is the validity of Jesus. Or rather, is Jesus who he says he is? Time and time again, we've read about Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders or the crowd and asked the same question. Who are you? Already in the passages in John that we've gone through, Jesus has been asked eight times who he is or by what authority he does this or that. Over and over again, we see that Jesus is constantly answering these questions that are presented to him with this beautiful deftness and grace. And yet, despite everything that Jesus has said and everything that Jesus has done, doubt continues to linger. And not only in the mind of the crowd or in the religious leaders and the Pharisees, but also in the disciples' minds. Now, it can be really easy for us in 2022 to look into Scripture and immediately distance ourselves from the antagonists in the story. We think to ourselves, if I was sitting in front of Jesus when he healed the lame man at the pool, I would believe him. And maybe you would be right in saying that. This passage that we just read today ends by saying that many believed in him. Perhaps you would be one of the people who followed him that day. You might be saying to yourself, how could they miss Jesus? He is right in front of them. It's so obvious. But I want you to go on a little contextual journey with me for a moment to see if maybe we could empathize with the unbelievers in this story. As many of you will know, if you're familiar with your Bibles, Israel in the first century is walking on a tightrope. On the one hand, they're trying to balance the belief that they're the chosen people of God with the reality of their cultural moment. Rome is, for all intents and purposes, at the height of her power politically, economically, and most importantly, militarily. Almost every great empire in history has been built through bloodshed, and the Roman Empire is no different. A century before the ministry of Jesus, so think like 67 BC, um, Julius Caesar would be carrying out something known as the Celtic Holocaust or the Gaelic Wars, in which two out of every three Gauls would be killed with the rest being enslaved. Rome was the ancient equivalent of the German army in the beginning of the Second World War. They steamrolled through people. They're definitely not someone that you wanted to mess with. So, the first century Jewish person is waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come back and liberate them from slavery. They see the brutality of the Roman Empire on a daily basis and hear the stories about the might of the legion. So it should come as no surprise that they would be hoping for the Messiah to be a, war a warrior, to be this Davidic figure that they see in the Old Testament. Someone who could rally the entire Jewish people in a holy war to reclaim Israel. And then Jesus comes on the scene, performing miracles and doing lots of messianic stuff. And some people see those things and believe, but others are still very skeptical. You're telling me that this guy is the Messiah? I just heard him say that the meek will inherit the earth. The Roman legionnaires seem to have no problem making sure the meek Gauls don't inherit the earth. How is he supposed to establish the new kingdom of God? You see, the people in the gospel account are not all doubting purely out of stubbornness or religiosity. They just lack faith and are filled with doubt. 
And Tao, ladies and gentlemen, has been at the forefront of the human mind since sin entered the world. I would argue that doubt is the very first lie to ever be presented into the human consciousness um, when Eve is first talking to the serpent. So if you want to turn with me really quickly, you don't have to because I'm going to read it, but in Genesis 3 it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice that key phrase, did God really say? Immediately, Eve is confronted with a whole new reality, one she's never thought about, that she has to deal with as the serpent injects doubt. Now to the great surprise of everyone reading the passage, Adam and Eve are deceived, they eat the fruit, and here we are living under the burden of that decision. Again, we can look back on this passage and say to ourselves, what are you doing, Adam and Eve? Of course God meant what he said. It's so obvious. But again, I want you to go on another journey with me. I want each of you to think of a time when someone has presented something to you that has caused you to doubt. And you know what, let's make it even easier. How many of you, with a show of hands, have been on vacation or at work and immediately wondered if you remembered to lock the front door or turn off the stove. Should be most of us. Some of you might even be like me and end up double or triple checking everything. I do it all the time. And still, when I'm out, out and about, I find myself having this moment of terror, wondering if someone is sleeping in my bed and eating my porridge. You see, humanity has been suffering from a pandemic of doubt since the fall and has yet to recover. Perhaps something has been weighing you down over this past season, causing you to doubt your foundations and robbing you of your peace. Over the last few months, I've been reading a ton of philosophical works, um, ranging from ancient Greece all the way up to modernism. And two of the people who I've really focused in on have been Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, I'm going to spare you guys the long, drawn-out explanation of rational empiricism from Kant and nihilistic existentialism from Nietzsche. But if you do want to hear about those things and kind of my interpretation of those, we can talk after or throughout the week. But to give you guys a really basic and simplistic explanation, both of these writers have had a profound impact on the way that we think in the modern world. Kant along with David Hume, really set the stage for understanding the world purely off of objective sense data. They're kind of the pinnacle of empirical and enlightened thought. Nietzsche, on the other hand, was pushing against the foundations of morality and was one of the first people to question whether or not a moral law can be taken as a given. He would actually describe himself in his last book as the first immoralist. He's happy with that, I guess. Again, we could spend a lifetime on these two guys, and thousands of people have dedicated their lives just to studying these people. But personally, I've been challenged by these two writers and forced to sharpen and reassess my own foundations. Many modern philosophers thrive on injecting doubt and deconstructing what we often take for granted, and that's not always a negative thing. 
Sometimes it is very negative, and sometimes it's really positive. But much in the same way that the serpent says to Eve, I can hear these words in the background when I read these books. Yeah, you might believe in God, Coulter, but how can you be sure? As I was thinking of an idea I could use to explain doubt, and the best thing that came to mind was fog, which is a super common metaphor and analogy. We know that it says in Scripture that we see through a glass dimly. So in some sense, we're always going to be in the fog of life, waiting for the gray veil of this world to be drawn back by the return of Jesus in the age to come. But so often, the fog of doubt seems so much thicker than just a dim glass. Sometimes it looks like a giant gray wall right in front of your face. And it's in these, mo these moments where I see the words of Jesus kind of spring back into the front of my consciousness. Coulter, he who sent me is trustworthy. You can trust me. I promise to be with you always. And I take a deep breath. I close my eyes. And immediately I'm reminded of the cross. The cross is one of those central ideas talked about in this passage when Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. The cross acts as an anchor point for us, a place which we can return to in times of strife and doubt. Because the cross is where we're reminded of the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf in order to set us free. We go back to it again and again, not out of religious obligation or fear, but with humility and gratitude in order to have the fog of doubt blown away by the wind of the Holy Spirit. And the world we live in, ladies and gentlemen, is so incredibly plagued with doubt and uncertainty despite the overwhelming abundance and security which can be found in our modern times. Anxiety and depression are the two most commonly diagnosed mental illnesses today, um, with over 40 million Americans over the age of 18 affected annually. This is a crisis, which is only getting worse as the years go by. People are craving to find something that they can grab onto in the storm and in the fog. So where do we go from here? How do we navigate the fog of our skeptical culture or deal with the doubts we find in our own hearts? If you're taking notes, here's three points to remember, and they're going to come up in order on the screen. Point number one, we have to be willing to wrestle with doubt. Doubt is inevitably going to come into our lives, and the goal is to not be someone who never doubts anything and is like an ostrich who puts his head in the sand because doubt has played a huge role in the development of civilization and has pushed, pushed us forward. It's a positive thing at times. However, when it comes to doubting the promises and the goodness of God, we need to be willing to first call those things out for what they are and engage with them head on. Now, I can't tell you how each of you are going to do that but I would encourage you to press into seeking. Point number two, we have to be a people of his presence. 
All of us are going to have seasons where the fog is thicker than others. It is in these times that each of us need to lean into encountering God and abiding in his presence. So next time an anxious thought comes into your mind and causes you to doubt, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to take a break and take a breath and just very simply, nothing uber spiritual or anything, just sit and say, Jesus, come and be with me in this moment. Allowing the presence of God to invade every aspect of our reality is what we're striving for as a community and as believers. The more we practice his presence, the thinner the fog becomes over time. And point number three, we have to be a people of community. It's no coincidence that the serpent waited until Eve was alone to throw doubts at her and later on at Adam. Uh, we've been called to encourage and build each other up, and that can really only happen if we choose to do two things. One, we have to be honest and authentic with one another, um, and then we have to want to live life together. So first, we have to actually present ourselves to one another as we are, and then second, we actually have to want to be that authentic person with other people, which is really difficult to do. We are all way more deceivable than we'd like to admit. I know I am. And super successful marketing campaigns are proof of that. So biblical community is not just a good idea. It's not just a concept that we should think about. It's a necessity. It's something we need to press into on a weekly and a daily basis. Before we close, I just want to circle back onto one thing. It's super simple nothing crazy. It's okay to doubt. And I'm going to say that one more time. It's okay to doubt. The Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New, is filled to the brim with people who doubted the promises of God. Adam, Eve, Moses, Peter, Thomas, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Almost every major figure in the Bible has a moment of doubt with God. And in each of these stories, God is not filled with terrible wrath when we doubt. But he is looking for each of them to lean on him. The problem is not necessarily in the doubt itself. Like it's, the problem isn't when the doubt is presented to us. The problem comes when we choose and how we choose to respond to it. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up. And as they make their way up here, um, I want you guys to ask yourself these two questions right now. We're going to have a short time of reflection um, and then also throughout the week. So question number one, where in my life am I allowing the fog of doubt to keep me from the presence and peace of Jesus? And question number two, what has been my response what has my response been in the past to this doubt and what is my response going to be in the future i'm going to take a moment to pray for us and then we're going to take a few minutes to sit with jesus and reflect on these ideas so if you guys want to bow your heads and join me in prayer jesus we thank you so much 
that you promised to be with us. We thank you so much for what you did on the cross, that you died for us so that you could banish these doubts for us. But God, I'm also reminded of the story of Thomas. He's remembered in history as doubting Thomas. And in that same moment, he looks at Peter and the other disciples and he says, look man, people don't come back from the dead. Like, unless I see his hands and his feet, I'm not going to believe. And it's so easy for us to say, come on, Thomas, what are you doing? But so many times in our own lives, we say the same thing. Unless I see, unless I know, then I won't believe. Jesus, I just love your response. You don't condemn Thomas in that moment. You walk up to him and say, see my hands, touch my side, look at my feet. Do you believe? God, I pray that our response would be the same as Thomas's, who doesn't get defensive, who merely falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Jesus, I pray that we would wrestle with our doubts in the same way. And that we would have the humility when you come and meet us, which you promised to do, to fall on our knees and say, my Lord and my God, we give you all these things in your name. Amen.